Amen. Yes, 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 absolutely. Amen. It took me like two months to put that video together. So thank you. Yeah, a lot of hard work. God, God bless you. Merry Christmas. Two days. Let me say Merry Christmas to all of you and even those who uh, are in the overflow. We've got two overflow rooms this morning. So uh, very thankful for uh, you guys joining us and worshiping the Lord uh, in this Christmas season. Those who are watching us online uh, as well. And so tomorrow we've got our three Christmas Eve services, 2, 3, 30, and 5. So we've changed the times uh, a little bit, kind of moved them up. And so I uh, would love you know you to join us tomorrow. It'll be kind of a shortened service, about 50 minutes really is what we're planning. Uh, but it's a great celebration celebration of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me do the check. All right, we got two days. How many of you need this afternoon because you got to get some stuff done? Raise your hand. How many of you? Be real. You're in church. Be real. How many of you not only need this afternoon, but you need Christmas Eve as well? Raise your hand. All right, right? We work best under pressure, right? I mean, that's my, my mom would say, when's your paper due? My, paper, my paper's due tomorrow. And she's like, well, why did you wait till I work best under pressure is what I would say all the time, which is just basically a statement of procrastination. And so God bless you guys as you go out there in the mix of that. We were, we were this week kind of looking at our Christmas card and, you know, you've got deadlines, right? I mean, you've got time that you got to get stuff out and, and Amber was putting together our Christmas card and she included our dog in the Christmas card. Married 13 years. I've never really been involved in the process, obviously, in the Christmas card. I'm, I'm realizing, I said, Amber, well, why do we put Princeton on the card, in the same font, the same size, it looks like we have two kids. It looks like we have a Tristan and a Princeton rather than a boy and a dog. And she said, look, she said, if we leave Princeton off the card, everyone's going to think he died. So he didn't die, okay? <laughs> and he's on the card. But it reminds me of a story. <laughs> I blew this at the 8 o'clock so bad. Like, I'm going to try my best to get this right. All right, here we go. Guy got a dog for Christmas, always wanted a dog, things were going well, but the dog was chasing people on a bike. And it got so bad that right around Christmas time, he had to give away the dog's bike. <laughs> the dog was on a bike chasing people, do you see what I'm saying? I see some of you not even breaking a smile. All right, here we go. Why did the rabbit fall into the well? Because he didn't see that well. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's rich. Okay, that's rich. I'm not comparing it to God's word. That's not what I'm doing. We're going to get to this in a moment. But let me go one more step further. Can I go one more step further? So we have a running kind of thing in our family about, about pirates. Our son's five. He loves pirates. And so we saw a pirate one day, and I thought it was clever. And I said, hey, Tristan, what is a pirate's favorite letter? R. My wife is not always great with timing when it comes to her humor. It's usually kind of, is she in here? She's not in here. She may see this. It's okay. Sometimes she's late. Sometimes she's early. Uh, but, but when she's on time, it's a cool thing. And so she, as soon as I said R, she said, no, no, no. It's the C they be loving. I said, honey, I've never loved you more than in this moment right now. You are a beautiful specimen in this moment right now. And so last night I told her, I said, hey, Amber, what about the pirate who turned 80? What does he tell his buddies when, when he turned 80? I, matey. Get it? I'm 80. I'm 80. Get it? Take your Bibles. Take your Bibles. Take your Bibles. Hey, hey, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Use it as you wish. All right, Luke chapter 2. 
This is what we're going to do. I, matey, get it? I'm 80, get it? That's pretty funny. All right. Greatest event in the history of the world. Not about pirates, not about bunnies in a well. We're going to talk about the birth of Jesus. So this is what we're going to do. You know, we've kind of gone through different sections. If you've been with us, we did the uh, announcement from Gabriel to Mary. We spent two weeks there in Luke 1, uh, 26 to verse 38. Uh, that, that beautiful verse, uh, 37 of Luke chapter 1, where the angel Gabriel says to Mary, and you will give birth uh, to, to the Messiah. And she says, how can this be? A very critical moment because she recognizes not only that she's a sinner, but that she's a virgin. And so the Holy, the Gabriel gives her the message that, that, that she will conceive a child through the Holy Spirit. And then in Luke 1, 37, you have that beautiful passage that says, with God, nothing is what? Say it with me. Nothing is, let's say that again. With God, nothing is, what are you staring at today in this Christmas season? What is it? that's on you right now in this moment. Because as we look at the Christmas story, again, it's a story we've heard, it's a story we've read, it's a story we've seen acted out, but there's so many practical implications to our own lives. Yes, we're celebrating Christmas. Yes, we're celebrating the promised Messiah, prophecy after prophecy, Jesus our Savior. Yes, we're celebrating those things. But in the midst of the extraordinary, right, we've seen this. You see the ordinary. You see ordinary people like you and I. They come to a moment of, of crisis, right? We, last week we talked about this crisis of faith where the Lord shows up. They're just living their lives. They're just doing their things. And the Lord shows up, stops them in their tracks and says, I've got a different plan for you. What happens when we come to that moment? When we can't see what's in front of us? When we can't see what's around the corner? When we can't add up all the elements of our lives, do we still trust the Lord and say, Lord, yes, I submit the direction and the calling that you've placed upon my life. And so we see individuals that God used in a mighty way, the ordinary and the extraordinary, the greatest event in the history of the world. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word. Luke chapter 2. So this is what we're going to do. First 14 verses, okay? So over these next two days, and this will kind of continue even into our Christmas Eve service tomorrow. Uh, shortened version. I'm not going to preach a 40-minute sermon, uh, but we'll kind of put a period on this passage uh, tomorrow in our Christmas Eve. We'll do 1 through 7 today, and then we'll pick up in verse 8 tomorrow with the announcement of the angels to the shepherds. And then we'll read down to verse 14. But for this morning, we're just going to look at the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. The greatest event in the history of the world. So try to take this passage in with fresh eyes. Try to read this verse as if you're coming to it for the first time. Okay? Here it goes. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Very important phrase there, everyone to his own city, fulfilling prophecy, understanding that Joseph is heading back now to Bethlehem. The prophecy of Micah, 700 years earlier, was that the Savior would come out of Bethlehem. It says this, Joseph went from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Now notice the simplicity of just the statement in verse 7. I mean, here it is, right? I mean, this is the moment. B.C.A.D., right? I mean, we even judge our calendar by the arrival of the Messiah. Everything leading up to this point, and you have one little sentence that announces it. Look at what it says here in verse 7. 
and she brought forth her firstborn son. Notice it says firstborn. It doesn't say only. Firstborn son. Wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to the story of our Savior, we're humbled by it, Lord, as we look at these passages and, Lord, as we look at our own lives, that you would desire to know us and have a relationship with us and to live within us and to walk with us, that in spite of us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ came, he lived, and he died, and he rose again. Lord, may we not miss the message of Christmas. Over these next two days that will be chaotic and stressful, keep us close. That as we reflect upon the manger, may, may we see the cross, this baby who came and took our place and paid a price for us. We celebrate that this morning. May the name of Jesus be lifted high. We pray it, we ask it, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, again, the ordinary and the extraordinary. You find Luke giving this historical account, and if you're not careful, you'll just kind of miss things, right? I mean, you're reading, you're reading, they're traveling, they're traveling. All of a sudden, she's now conceived a child, and so if you're not careful, you kind of miss it, right? You see the view from heaven, but then he also kind of plays the view from a practical sense from a human being. I mean, picture the scene, right? They have traveled close to 90 miles, 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Think about that alone. Eight and a half months pregnant. Ladies, think about that. Eight and a half months pregnant, and she travels 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Many historians believe that this was a three to five day travel. They're just being obedient. They're following the leading of the Lord. Now, again, picture the scene. This is a young teenage couple. Many believe, again, Joseph had to be probably 14, 15, 16 years old. Put yourself in his shoes when you were 14, 15, 16 years old. Here's Mary. Many believe probably around 13, 14 years old, eight and a half months pregnant, having traveled now 85 to 90 miles from Nazareth to the village of David, or to the village of Bethlehem, to the city of David. Obedience is what you find. And the lives of these individuals who God interacted and, and, and stopped them in their tracks, you find obedience. You find them not knowing when the second door is going to be open or the third door is going to be open or the fourth door. They just merely want to walk through the first door. And let's be real, that's hard, right? When God is stirring in our hearts and God is leading, we want to see door number one, two, three, four, and five. We want to see where the path may go. But it doesn't work that way. Right? I mean, I know in my own life, right, the Lord brings me to a place. He opens the door, and the next door, I don't know where it's going to lead, but he says, do you trust me? Do you trust me? In this moment of crisis, will you continue to pursue me and be obedient to what I've called you to do? And you see that playing out in the lives and the characters of the Christmas story, traveling 90 miles just to be obedient to what God was leading. And here they arrive, and look at the end of verse 7. There was no room for them in the end. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you just looked up and said, Really, God? Have you ever been there before? Have you ever been there before? Say amen. Amen? amen. Maybe this morning as you're trying to get your kids ready, right? You're thinking, Really, God? I mean, this is Christmas. We're supposed to be celebrating the birth of a Savior, and I want to kill my child. Like, really, God? You know what I'm saying? Like, like things are happening, and you just come to a place, and, and, and God stops you, and you're like, Really? I mean, think about this. They've traveled 90 miles and they arrived at their destination. There's no place for them to sleep. I mean, what was going through the heart and mind of Joseph and Mary? What was going through the mind of Mary? 
Lord, we've done what you've told us to do. We've made this journey. I believe you are sovereign. I believe you have control. I believe you're in authority or all this, but you couldn't even provide a room for us? There's such symbolism here, right? Because we know that the Bible says what? That Jesus came to his own and his own what? Received him not. There's symbolism in this. That as we celebrate Christmas, right, we know that there are so many people who know the story, they've heard the story, they believe the story, but there's no room in their life for Jesus. They got a little bit too much other stuff going on. And so there's some symbolism here. So they arrive in Bethlehem. Notice what happens here. Let's walk through. Go to verse 1 through 3. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered for the purpose of taxes, right? Verse 2, the census first took place. While Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. What do you find? You find Roman rule, right? I mean, as you come to Luke chapter 2, I mean, here are these Jewish people that, again, they were kind of bitter and resentful in the fact that why do we have to pay taxes on our own land? And so you come here to Luke 2, and what do you find? You find Roman rule, Roman authority. They have been called now to go back to the place of their birth to register for what reason? For the purpose of taxes, What's so amazing about the story is you see God orchestrating everything, right? I mean, in our lives, sometimes all we see is chaos. But when you look at God's word, what do you find? You find the promises that God works in the details of our lives, that there is nothing wasted in our lives, that God is involved in every single thing. Here's the story where God is orchestrating the whole thing. Even pagan, godless leaders, he is moving in the heart of these men to arrange the setting for the arrival of the Messiah, the sovereignty of God. I mean, it's such a beautiful thing, right? I mean, part of this, part of God bringing together all the components of this divine moment, the right time, the right place, was to move in the mind of godless people who knew nothing about the Old Testament, nothing about the coming Messiah, nothing about God whatsoever, and had no desire to. And yet, what do you find? They play a critical role in the details and the birth of Jesus, the sovereignty of of God. Let's go a little bit further. It says this first one. It came to pass in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus. We know that this is just a title, right? Caesar is a term like king or emperor or pharaoh. It's simply a title. Uh, Augustus is an adjective. It basically means revered one, honored one, majestic one. We know that the Bible is referring to a man by the name of Gaius Octavius. He was known as Octavian Caesar. He ruled for 45 years. So he sends out a decree. For everyone to go to his own city. Now, this is interesting. As you dig a little bit into, into the history, into the commentary of this, many historians believe that this was not a Roman thing, that the, that the Romans did not require everyone to go back home, that this was a Jewish thing. That because of the records of the temple, that, that this was something, this was a decision made by, by Jewish leaders, uh, religious leaders that said, okay, we are going to go back to our own city to register for the purpose of taxes. What do you find? God working in the details of the story. Verse 4, look at what it says. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Let's talk about two things here, Joseph and Bethlehem. We touched on this a little bit last week, but Joseph. I mean, just again, just, just take a moment and think about the crisis of Joseph. Just think about it. Here's a pregnant wife who, who, who's a virgin, who, who, who's been engaged with an angel and has been conceived of the Holy Spirit. Think about the position he's in. He's traveling with an eight and a half month pregnant wife just trying to do what God's called him to do. 
trying to love the Lord and love his wife. And you find opposition, opposition, opposition. They arrive at Bethlehem. Now, again, this was no coincidence, right? 700 years earlier, the prophet Micah, listen to his words. Here's one of those prophecies being fulfilled. Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5 says this. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, he gives both titles. Ephrathah is the title of Bethlehem that you find in Genesis 35 where Rachel was buried. So he gives both titles, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Though you are little, I love this, among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one, the one, capital O, the one to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth, now notice this, are from of old, from everlasting. What a prophecy, right? I mean, we know that he's speaking of, of a coming king. He's not talking about David. This was 300 years after David. He's talking about the one who would come and rule forever. And he speaks of the eternal aspect of it. What does he say? From the old and from everlasting. It's a prophecy 700 years earlier to the birth of Jesus, specifically in Bethlehem. House of bread is what Bethlehem means. How cool is that? How is Jesus described? He has described what is the bread of life. Out of the house of bread, Bethlehem, came the bread of life. In which Jesus declared of those who feed upon me shall never hunger, shall never thirst. I love this. Look at verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. What do we know about this? All we know is that she was in Bethlehem. We don't know anything else beyond that. We know that the Bible says that there was no room for them in the end. Now, you go back and you look. I mean, there were, there were public housings and a lot of times in these cities. And what would happen is, and you can imagine the crowd, right? If everybody's going back to their own city, I mean, it's crowded. And they arrive and, and, and there's, you know, some speculate it could have been a cave, maybe. Some speculate it could have been a stable, maybe. We get that from the feeding trough. But there's no mention of a cave. There's no mention of a stable. So we're not really sure the exact details in the surroundings of Jesus, but we know he's born in a manger. And you think about, again, you think about the faith of Mary and Joseph in this. Ordinary men and women, just like you and I, sinful men and women, just like you and I. And yet God says, I've got something different in store for you. Moment of crisis, crisis of faith. We're in it every single day. There's some of you in it right now, right now, where you know where the Lord is taking. You know what the Lord is saying. You know truth. You know promises. But yet the enemy is attacking. There's opposition all around. And you feel like what? You take one step forward and you get knocked back too. Listen, what do we find in God's word? That God is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful to complete the work that he's begun in us. What must they have been thinking in this moment? A manger, a feeding trough, and then verse 7, just the beginning of it. Just notice this. Listen how Luke says it. And she brought forth her firstborn son. Now, again, he designated this was not her only son. We know that Mary eventually had more children, but this was her firstborn son. Why? Because she was a virgin. You think about what's happening here, right? All the struggles, all the unanswered questions. You think about the thoughts, the opposition of Mary and and Joseph, all the fears, all the unknowns. And then they hear, think about this, the first cry of Almighty God. Think about that for a moment. They've traveled 90 miles. They've encountered angels. 
There's no room for them. Opposition, opposition, opposition. But they're faithful. They're faithful. They're faithful. They're continuing to walk in the Lord. They're continuing to be obedient to what God is calling them to do. And God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Can you imagine the moment of all the stuff leading up and then they hear the voice? Think about that. Emmanuel. God with us. And then again, you just see the ordinary setting, right? What does it say in verse 7? She brought forth her firstborn son, I love this, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. The ordinary. She swaddled him. Physically treated like any other child, right? No royal robes. There was no fancy clothing. He didn't come out with a little halo over his head. There's no trumpets. There's no fanfare. Think about this. God encountering the world. God coming into his own creation. And where do you find him? You find him in the feeding trough of an animal. You want to see grace, just go to Christmas, amen? I mean, it's the story, right? It's the story of God's pursuit of us in spite of us. I go to the cross, and you go to the cross, and what do you find? You find that there were those who were beating Jesus and whipping Jesus and spitting upon Jesus, and you see the heart, the grace of God. What does he do? He cries out, and he says what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we think about Christmas and we think about our own lives, we're so undeserving of God's love, so undeserving of God's grace, but he comes for us. He pursues us. The story of Christmas is that Christ came, a Savior came, our hero came to save the day, to bridge the gap between us, sinful men and women, and a holy and righteous God. And the Bible says for those who call upon the name of the Lord, that they are a new creation, raised to walk in newness of life. And when they stand before their God, when they stand before their creator, they will stand before almighty God covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's Christmas. To know that my sins have been forgiven. That's Christmas. To know that I will stand clean before almighty God. That's Christmas. As we look at the manger, what do we see? We see the cross. We see the cross. We see Jesus born in a manger, but who grew in a man leading to a cross would die for our sins. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and then look at that next phrase, laid him in a manger, literally a trough. What a beautiful picture of God's grace. Think about the first smell of Almighty God. Possibly, we would think, surrounded by animals, right? There's a manger there, a feeding trough. I'm sure there's animals. And this is interesting to me because I think about how the Bible describes, you know, how the Bible describes a life of worship, how the Bible describes of living in spirit and truth, that we are a fragrance to God. You know how the Bible says that? That we are a, a fragrance to the nostrils of God. And yet here you see Almighty God born in a feeding trough, coming to us. Coming to our mess, coming to our struggles, so that we might be saved. 
And it's that recognition, right? I mean, what is Christmas? Christmas is the recognition of the bad news. What is the bad news? That we are sinners in this place. If you believe that, say amen. Amen? If you didn't say amen, you just sinned. So now you're a part of the crowd because you lied. We're all sinners. Every one of us. And the Bible says what? For all, for all, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Parents to your children, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's that recognition that I stand before an almighty God guilty. It's that recognition that I stand before a holy God covered in my gunk, in my failures, in my flaws, in my sins. It's coming to that recognition that, you know what, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing humanly possible for me to bridge that gap. There's no amount of religion, morality. There's nothing I can do to bridge that gap. But when I look upon Christmas, what do I see? I see that God did it, that God bridged the gap, that he brought us his son, that Christ may be the sacrifice for our sins, understanding that the wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life. The Bible declares that while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love and Christ died for us. Just think about Romans 5, 8 for a moment. He didn't just declare his love for us. He didn't just say, I love you. The Bible says he demonstrated his love toward us. How did he do that? By giving us what was most precious, his only son. Christmas, man, you can get caught up, right? I'm learning that as a parent. You can get caught up very quick. And all of a sudden, you're renting a storage unit just to put toys in, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're saving toys for, for Christmas 2025. Like, we've done that before. And then he outgrew the toy. But anyway, you can get, it can get chaotic. And we can miss it. We can miss it. As we think about our kids and we think about the gifts that we give to them. You know, what a beautiful picture of Christmas, right? I give because I love. That's John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he what? Say it with me, that he, that he gave his only begotten son. So I challenge you, man, as we go through, especially these next two days, just personally walk this out. As you reflect upon you and what God has done for you. And as you reflect upon the gift of Christmas. I want you to see something. Go to Galatians, if you would. Galatians 4. I want to read two passages. Let's do Galatians 4 first. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. I love this. It says this, But when the fullness of time had come, perfect sovereignty... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Here it is, to redeem, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out what? Abba, Daddy, Father. Here it is, verse 7. You ready? The celebration of Christmas. Here it is, verse 7. For all those who have called upon the name of the Lord, for all those who have professed Christ as Lord and Savior, verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. Can I get an amen? You are no longer a slave. You are no longer in bondage. But now you are what? You are a son. You have been adopted by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And because you've been adopted through the blood of Jesus Christ, you ready for this? Not only are you not a slave, not only are you a son, but you are a 
joint heir. You are a joint heir to the Lord Jesus Christ. It puts things. And keep that close to you over these next two days. Just keep that close to you. When your family's getting on your nerves and you're just trying to get them out of your house, keep keep this close to you. (laughs) Not mine. I love my family, but (laughs) y'all. And go there by yourself. Just go to the Lord by yourself. And reflect upon the personal impact of Christmas. And the eternal hope that that provides, regardless of what you're going through right now, the eternal hope that that provides, that there will come a day, there will come a day, that if God tarries and calls me home or he comes back, there will come a day where I will stand before him in his presence without sin, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. All the former things have what? Passed away. I celebrate the King of kings and the Lord of lords who came for me in spite of me. Every head bowed and every eye closed. In spite of me. That Romans 5 eight passage, man, it's just something that the Lord is just continuing. I know to stir in my heart. Because it describes the state we're in. While we were yet sinners, born into sin, in the bondage of sin, the Savior who came to save the day, God himself, Emmanuel. Listen, my prayer over these next two days, six services, this is now the second of six, is that for every single person that walks in the door of this place, that they would hear first and foremost, God's love for you. That he demonstrated it by providing a son, a savior. And my prayer of these next two days simply is this. If you don't know Christ as your savior, whether it's in a moment like this of invitation or a moment just before the Lord, that you would cry out, God, I need you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I don't understand it all, but by faith, I profess Christ as my savior. This Jesus did come, and he lived a perfect life, and he died in my place upon a cross. And as Isaiah says, by his stripes I am healed. I profess that, and I cry out to the name of Jesus, to believers in this place. May we keep the main thing the main thing, and to rest in Luke one thirty seven. That with our God, nothing is impossible. There's something standing in front of you this morning. With our God, nothing is impossible. A moment of a crisis of faith. Do you trust? Do you trust? Do you run your own way? Do you do your own thing? Or do you trust and wait? Hardest thing to do upon you. Our spiritual response team is here, man. They're so faithful to pray, to come beside you. And please, if the Lord's leading you, stirring you, don't allow the enemy to rob you of the work that God wants to do. I'm going to ask you to stand right where you are as we go to the Lord in prayer. And as we enter into this time of invitation, our Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. 
And Lord, not only did you speak that love, Lord, you demonstrated that love by providing a Savior, by giving us your Son. And so, Lord, in this place this morning, we lift high the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the one name by which we are saved, the name above all names, the one who came and lived and died and rose again. We profess Jesus as we reflect upon the manger. We see the cross. That's where we see ourselves. yesterdays. We serve a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of love, a God who desires to walk with us, to live with us. It's that crisis of faith. So Lord Jesus, may you be victorious in the work you do in our lives. We lift you high. Jesus and all God's people said.